recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, June 12, 2015. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Tonight we are at the home of Clifton Emmerheiser in Northwest Ohio, blessed with the um, company of several dear friends and CI brethren, Christian Identity Brethren. Uh, I won't name names, but we're happy to have them here. We apologize for the setback we had last week in the second part of this presentation. We were entirely cut off from the internet and had no warning or notion of the situation for over 20 minutes due to an anomaly in the internet connection. We'll try to take precautions in the future that that doesn't happen again by using separate internet connections. When we were finally able to do something about it, it was decided that it was best to just cut the program short rather than to attempt to compensate for it hastily and Ashley, the, the recording on the website for Positive Christianity in the Third Reich Part 2 is only maybe about 51 minutes for that reason, but it is complete, and, and we were able to present all of the information which we wanted to up to the point where the recording ends. We had initially planned to finish Part 1 of Positive Christianity in the Third Reich last week, which is entitled the religious policy of national socialism. And instead, we only finished the first section of that portion of Fabricius's booklet, which, was, which is subtitled, What We Reject. Tonight, we shall commence with the second section of this part of his booklet, which is subtitled, What We Affirm. In the last segment of this presentation of Positive Christianity in the Third Reich, we concluded Caius Fabricius's assessment of the things which National Socialism rejected, which he listed as liberalism, attacks on Christianity, and substitutes for religion, meaning that the humanist and the pagan religions, and the absolutely insane idea that National Socialists sought to replace Christianity with any of those, even though time and again throughout Mein Kampf and throughout his, his legitimate recorded discussions, his speeches, Hitler refuted those ideas, as did so many other prominent National Socialists. And Hitler upheld Christianity, as did so many other prominent National Socialists, including Himmler. And a lot of people love to say, oh, Himmler was a pagan, and that's simply not true. Himmler was also a Christian, and white nationalists would serve themselves best to stop accepting Jewish lies, which we will discuss further on and, and as this series progresses. Presenting those items, those items in Fabricius's booklet detailing what National Socialists rejected, we offered a long quote from Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, 
which we had asserted demonstrates Hitler's understanding of biblical scripture, that it was advanced well beyond that of the so-called clerics of the mainstream denominations. Here we will repeat the last portion of that citation, portion about one half of a paragraph, from Book 2, Chapter 10 of Mein Kampf, where Adolf Hitler wrote, the two Christian denominations look on with indifference at the profanation and destruction of a noble and unique creature who is given to the world as a gift of God's grace. For the future of the world, however, it does not matter which of the two triumphs over the other, the Catholic or the Protestant, but it does matter whether Aryan humanity survives or perishes. And yet the two Christian denominations are not contending against the destroyer of Aryan humanity, referring to the Jew, but are trying to destroy one another. Everybody who has the right kind of feeling for his country is solemnly bound, each within his own denomination, to see to it that he is not constantly talking about the will of God merely from the lips, but that in actual fact he fulfills the will of God and does not allow God's handiwork to be debased. For it was by the will of God that men were made of certain bodily shape, were given their natures and their faculties. Whoever destroys his work wages war against God's creation and God's will. Likewise, Adolf Hitler had written similarly in Book 2, Chapter 1 of Mein Kampf. And we will, we, we will quote from that chapter briefly. To undermine the existence of human culture by exterminating its founders and custodians, Adolf Hitler saw the Aryan race as the founders and custodians of human culture, would be an execrable crime in the eyes of those who believe that the folk idea lies at the basis of human existence. Whoever would dare to raise a profane hand against that highest image of God, Adolf Hitler saw the Aryan man as the pinnacle of God's creation, the man of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And identity Christians should certainly understand that. Whoever would dare to raise a profane hand against that highest image of God among his creatures would sin against the bountiful creator of this marvel and would collaborate in the expulsion from paradise. Adolf Hitler also understood that Genesis chapter 3 was a story about the spoiling of Aryan blood. This is the first element necessary in realizing how Hitler was indeed a Christian, and he repeated these ideas throughout Mein Kampf, but why the so-called Christian denominations will never recognize his Christianity. Because Hitler understood that Yahweh God created the Aryan man 
as the pinnacle of his creation and to destroy the Aryan blood by mixing it with these other races is to destroy the creation of God. Yet today, the denominational churches, which have all long ago been infiltrated by the Jews, teach that to mix one's race is to do God a favor. Yet, This is the same thing which God himself detested in Genesis chapter 6. Adolf Hitler is on the side of God in Genesis chapter 6. And for it, God destroyed the man which he created because that man had mixed his race. Adolf Hitler was, in this respect at least, the Enoch of his time, or perhaps the Phineas of his time. But this is not the only aspect in which Hitler was a true Christian. A true Christian would follow the scripture. A true Christian would see the laws of God in his creation and seek to uphold those laws. And Adolf Hitler did. He understood that race mixing the blood of the German people with non-Aryan peoples was evil and destroying God's creation. That is anti-Christian. That is not Christian. Adolf Hitler was the true Christian who would uphold God's creation. This is not the only aspect in which Hitler was a true Christian. And here, where we present the section of Caius Fabricius's Positive Christianity in the Third Reich entitled, What We Affirm, we shall see other aspects of National Socialism's Christian foundations. When you speak to a, to, to a secular white nationalist and you tell them, oh, Adolf Hitler was a Christian, the secular white nationalist really only has the denominational Judeo-Christianity, Judaized Christianity's assessment of what Christianity is, and the secular white nationalist thinks you're crazy for thinking that Adolf Hitler was a Christian. The denominational Christian who only understands Christianity through what he's told by these Jewish-controlled churches would also think you're crazy for insisting that Adolf Hitler was a Christian. If you compare Adolf Hitler's social and racial philosophies in Mein Kampf to the Bible, to hell with the denominational churches, dismiss everything they say, compare Mein Kampf to the Bible, you'll find that Adolf Hitler was indeed a Christian. All these denominational Judeo-Christians, they are Jews between the ears. Secular white nationalists that accept those stories from the Judaized churches, they too are thinking after the pattern which the Jew has made for the goyim to think. They too are Jews between the ears. With that, we will commence with Caius Fabricius and what we affirm. Point number one, positive 
Christianity. Abandoning negatives. Let us now ask the question, what is the religion upon which the new life in Germany is to be constructed in accordance with the basic principles of National Socialism? What is the strong, life-giving spiritual food upon which the soul of the newly awakened folk is to feed? The answer is positive Christianity. But what is positive Christianity? It means at any rate, the religion that has grown and become as one with the spirit of the German nation throughout the history of the centuries. The utterances of the Fuhrer have made this perfectly clear. And undoubtedly, it is in accordance with the essence of National Socialism. For everywhere, this movement forms connections with all the noblest powers. It discovers and knows to be national in the German spirit. Thus, it is perfectly natural that the new movement should seek contact with the religion so intimately woven by countless living associations into the history of our folk, both in past history and the present day. Positive, and this is a, an abused word even when assessing positive Christianity, and, and people don't even understand that Fabricius himself had defined it. Positive means here, as everywhere, the real thing. But in the case of a spiritual power like religion, it means what is a historical reality. A special meaning, however, within this general interpretation may be given to the word positive, and with it to the term positive Christianity. The real thing may be understood as something opposed to what is artificial, supposed, or pretended, and I would add to that, and, and Fabricius probably wouldn't because he's a theologian changed, trained in the Lutheran church, I would add to that that when we examine Christianity, what the churches present, the rituals, the rites, the costumes, the offices, the buildings, that's all bullshit. None of it's Christianity. That is what is artificial, supposed, or pretended. The real thing is to practice the actual words of Christ and the laws of God in the Bible. That's the real thing, is to put Christianity into everyday effect in your life. And that's what positive Christianity is, and we will see what that entails briefly. Thus, a difference has been made between the positive historical religion and a rational philosophical trend of thought. Taken in the sense to profess positive Christianity would be to reject all systems of free thought and free religion. And we're going to define those shortly, how, how the Germans use those terms. Together with all would-be rationalistic interpretations of Christianity. Again, positive Christianity may be taken to mean what is universally known as practical Christianity, which is a Christianity not exhausting itself in expressing convictions of faith, but, and that's what the churches have, every, all Christians today do, they exhaust themselves in, in saying, I believe in Jesus, and they have no idea what Jesus they believe in not exhausting itself in expressing convictions of faith, 
but one active in loving one's neighbor. But the sense of the word positive must not be strained too much in interpreting positive Christianity. A political party program like that of the National Socialists has most certainly not taken upon itself the task of pronouncing a limited and special type of Christianity to be its religion. Moreover, the program itself adds that, that it does not bind itself in the matter of creed to any particular confession. Hence, generally speaking, it is obvious that nothing else except the historical and real Christian religion is meant, which, as the living religion of the folk, cannot be confined within a narrow scheme, but encloses within itself the individual opinions and points of view in abundance. In other words, in the mind of Caius Fabricius, people, Christians of many different opinions about many different things, could still coexist in one organized national Christianity, one organized national Christian profession. And he will explain that shortly. According to Caius Fabricius, positive Christianity is, quote-unquote, a Christianity not exhausting itself in expressing convictions of faith, but one active in loving one's neighbor. Joseph Goebbels himself had once said that I am a Christian when I believe that the meaning of my life is the heavy responsibility to love my neighbor as myself. But of course, Joseph Goebbels also understood that his neighbor was his fellow German, and then those of related nations. Love for one's neighbor is the embodying principle of the commandments of Yahweh our God, and the National Socialists knew and sought to make it the most basic element of the conduct of daily life in Germany. The Apostle John wrote in his first epistle, in chapter 3, in this, the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever, and I'm quoting the King James Version, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither is he that loves not his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And likewise, the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 5, for all the law is fulfilled in this one word, even in this Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The Apostle James called this same thing the royal law of Scripture in James chapter 2. The admonition, which is first found in Leviticus chapter 19, is also repeated six times in the Gospels and several times more in the epistles of Paul. There are caveats, however. In the Bible, in the New Testament, the word translated as neighbor from Greek is most often the adverb, plation, usually accompanied with the definite article to indicate its use as a noun, a substantive. By itself, the word distinguishes neither geographical proximity nor closeness in relationship. However, there were other Greek words which did describe geographical proximity and they were also translated as neighbor in the King James Version. 
the words Gaiton and Perioikos simply mean somebody of the same land or somebody dwelling in proximity to you. Those words express geographic proximity. But the word plation, which is always the word neighbor in love thy neighbor as thyself, plation describes only one who is close or near to you. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 43, Christ said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor, plation, and hate thine enemy. And if the word neighbor in that passage in the Greek only had a meaning of geographical proximity, then the statement would have no meaning at all if one's enemy lived in a house next door. So therefore, it should be evident that Placeon describes one who is near to you or one who is near to another, but not necessarily in a geographical sense. Rather, one who is near in relationship is how the word should be understood in the Bible. Acts chapter 7, verse 27, gives an account of the events recorded in Exodus chapter 2, where one Israelite is referred to as a placeon, or neighbor, as the King James Version has it, in relation to another Israelite. But that Israelite was not considered the placeon, or the neighbor, in reference to the dead Egyptian, the Egyptian which Moses slew. Yet Moses, as it is evidenced in the Exodus account, could not have known that these two Israelite men lived in close proximity to one another, as we currently understand the meaning of the term neighbor. He could only have known that the men had a tribal relationship. And for that reason, they were considered neighbors in contrast to the dead Egyptian. The Hebrew word in the original text of the command that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, which is found at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, is Strong's Hebrew number 7453. It is reah. And Strong defines it as an associate, more or less close. So a neighbor is an associate. And then Strong's lists the way that the King James Version translated the word in other passages. And he lists brother, companion, fellow, friend, husband, lover, and neighbor. And the King James Version translated reah in all those ways. And therefore, it should be certainly evident that placeion, which is how they always wrote that word reah in Greek, is simply not one who lives near you, but one who is close in relationship to you. In Leviticus 19.18, where the, where the commandment first appears. We see the bounds in which the word is used defined for us in this same manner. Because neighbor in Leviticus 19.18 can only refer back to one of the children of thy people according to the commandment as it is given. That passage reads, Thou shalt not avenge, nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
I am Yahweh. Therefore, one's neighbor must be from among the children of one's people. The Hebrew word from which the word meaning neighbor is derived from is reah, and it's pronounced the same and it's spelled a little differently, and it's Strong's number 7462. And reah, as a verb is defined by strong to mean to tend a flock. In other words, to pasture it, to graze, and then to rule. By extension, to associate with as a friend. And therefore, the way the verb is used, it is apparent that if one is a member of the flock, then one's placeion or one's neighbor can only be a member of the same flock. The word insinuates someone who grazes together and pastures with you. So we see that if one is of your flock, he is a neighbor. That's the way the word neighbor should be understood in the Bible. But if one is not of your flock, he cannot ever be a neighbor. A wolf who moves into the sheepfold can never be a sheep, and therefore a wolf in the sheepfold can never be a neighbor to the sheep. This contextual meaning of the word neighbor is lost in the denominational churches, which attempt to peddle the notion that all so-called believers are neighbors. But that was not the way that the word was ever used in the Bible. Understanding that the true meaning of the word neighbor was limited to one's fellow countrymen, one's fellow flock members, one's own race. The National Socialist implementation of the royal law of Scripture, as James called it, is absolutely agreeable to Christianity and especially to the Christian identity interpretation of Scripture. The Christian expression of love for one's brother is in the demotion of the ego, the laying aside of one's own ego, so that a man may put aside his concerns for himself in exchange for a concern for his kinsmen and his brethren, and by extension, his nation and his race. From Matthew chapter 20, from verse 25, But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the nations exercise dominion over them, and and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. The King James Version has minister, and, and that's obviously to uphold church structure. Whoever, is, whoever will be great among you, let him be your servant. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, not to be ministered unto, but to minister or to serve, and to give his wife a ransom for many. Likewise, from 1 John 3.16, the first epistle of John, chapter 3. Hereby we perceive the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
Christ admonished his followers not to simply die and say they did it for their kin. Christ admonished his followers to devote themselves and their lives to their brethren, where he is recorded in Luke chapter 9 as having said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. How do we do that? We do that by spending our lives for the service of our brethren, just like Christ did for us. Adolf Hitler's National Socialism is based on this same precept as he wrote in Mein Kampf, in Volume 1, in Chapter 11, the readiness to sacrifice one's personal work and, if necessary, even one's life for others shows its most highly developed form in the Aryan race. The greatness of the Aryan is not based on his intellectual powers, but rather on his willingness to devote all his faculties to the service of the community. Here the instinct for self-preservation has reached its noblest form, for the Aryan willingly subordinates his own ego to the common wheel or the common good, and when necessity calls, he will even sacrifice his own life for the community. The constructive powers of the Aryan and that peculiar ability he has for the building up of a culture are not grounded in his intellectual gifts alone. If that were so, they might only be destructive and could never have the ability to organize. For the later essentially depends on the readiness of the individual to renounce his own personal opinions and interests and to lay both at the service of the human group, meaning his national tribe. By serving the common wheel, he receives his reward in return. For example, he does not work directly for himself, but makes his productive work a part of the activity of the group to which he belongs, speaking of Aryans, not only for his own benefit, but for the general. The spirit underlying this attitude is expressed by, this, by the word work. And this is how Hitler defined work. Real work was service to the community. Christ told his followers to serve their brethren, to give up their own riches in, in, in favor and for the benefit of their brethren, and they will have treasure in heaven. This paragraph of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf is teaching the practical application of the words of Christ in modern language. The spirit underlying this attitude is expressed by the word work, which to him does not at all signify a means of earning one's daily livelihood, as the Jew would have us believe, but rather a productive activity which cannot clash with the interest of the community. Whenever human activity is directed exclusively to the service of the instinct for self-preservation, it is called theft or usury, robbery or burglary, etc. And these principles of brotherly love and self-sacrifice are the foundation of national socialism, and they are also the foundation of Christianity. Adolf Hitler was a 
Christian in principle, and he was a better Christian than the priests of the denominational churches, since he also saw that in the instinct of self-preservation, the godless man resorts to stealing. Hitler also sought to uphold Christian morals. Before the advent of Christianity, the nations of Europe were awash in both usury and robbery. While many of the Greek philosophers struggled against the problem of usury, and the Roman historians recorded the problems with usury in Rome, the pagan states nevertheless allowed usury to prevail over the people and the Jews to thrive at their expense. Christianity forbade usury until the 16th century, until when Jews sufficiently infiltrated the Roman Catholic Church to the degree where they could corrupt it. Until the time of the Demedicis, the Roman Catholic Church forbade usury. Until the time of the Demedicis, most of Europe was free of usury. With this, we will commence with part two of what we affirm. This part is entitled, Two Great Churches. In Germany, however, while considering the situation of Christianity, we are confronted with an important fact of which we have already made brief mention, but must necessarily spend a moment or so in its further consideration because it would appear to place special difficulties in the way of National Socialism. It is the duality of the two great churches. Some two-thirds of the German nation belong to the Evangelical Church, and about one-third to the Roman Catholic Church. But National Socialism wishes to consolidate the nation in all its parts into one strong inner unity. How is this to be accomplished when its inner life, that is, in religion, the nation is divided into two great communities, one of which is the largest organization in the country next to the Reich itself, and the other forms an organization that is mainly represented in other countries. The American founding fathers had struggled with this same problem. The documents which they created were based on compromise because of this problem. And those compromises eventually supplied the enemies of Christ, the enemies of the Aryan man, with the tools which they needed to undermine the very principles upon which this nation was founded. Since the Jews were always seen as an alien minority, and when this nation was founded, they still had no political voice in Europe, their political influence was severely underestimated. Since Catholics were supposedly Christians and they had a political voice, the Catholic question was much more important to early Americans than the Jewish question because the Catholics profess allegiance to a foreign power in the Romish Pope. We saw in the earlier portions of this booklet, the Caius Fabricius entertained the notion that Christians of all persuasions could coexist harmoniously inside one of the two great denominations in Germany. And this was historically true to a great extent for at least several centuries up to his own time. Even humanists operated inside of the Roman Catholic Church. 
before the time of Martin Luther, where many who assess National Socialist religious beliefs go wrong is by imagining that by saying confessional liberty, they meant something other than Christian confessional liberty. They did not. The usage of the phrase confessional liberty is always within the Christian context. And the National Socialists expected all men to be Christian in one form or another. The same is true of America's founders, where we see references to freedom of religion. It was taken for granted that the people understood that to mean freedom of Christian religion. Just like the National Socialists, freedom of Christian religious profession. For either National Socialists or American Revolutionaries, the terms were never intended to give license to non-Christian religious professions. Fabricius addresses this same problem by saying, the answer to this is as follows. National Socialism has not the intention of forcing every German to become evangelical, nor to insist on his conversion to Roman Catholicism. Neither does it intend by the authority of the state to establish one church representing a mixture of both creeds. All such measures would be in sharp opposition to the recognized basic principle of confessional liberty where attempts to be made to violate the consciences of many millions of people. Besides, all national socialists who are at all conscious of their responsibility know enough of history and human nature to see that any attempts of this kind would lead to stubborn opposition. Rather, must the differences between the great churches be left as noble rivalry in the spiritual arena? How the destinies of the two great churches will be further shaped in the coming decades and centuries is not for the state nor for the party as such to determine. It must be left to the great guide of history, who actually gave them up to the Jews, which is what they deserved because they were worshiping Jews. It must be left to the great guide of history to develop the inner life of our folk in this respect according to his will. And never must pressure of any kind whatsoever be practiced by the state or by the party. Reckoning as they do with facts, they must simply tolerate the coexistence of two great churches in Germany. At the same time, however, they must so exercise their influence that the duality of the churches should not be prejudicial to the inner peace of the nation. Let there be liberty of religious discussion, but at the same time, care must be taken to see that freedom is united with love and dignity to the avoidance of malice, slander, and suspicion, and even, and that even the most important debates be carried on as between experts and in a brotherly spirit. And this agrees with the words of Adolf Hitler from Book 1, Chapter 12 of Mein Kampf, where he wrote that the movement steadfastly refuses to take up any standard regard to those problems which are either outside of its sphere of political work or seem to have no fundamental importance for us. It does not aim at bringing about a religious reformation, but rather a political reorganization of our people. 
It looks upon the two great religious denominations as equally valuable mainstays for the existence of our people, and therefore it makes war on all those parties which would degrade this foundation on which the religious and moral stability of our people is based to an instrument in the service of party interests. So we see that confessional liberty is Christian confessional liberty, where anti-Christians are portrayed as enemies of the state. The difficulty, back to Caius Fabricius, the difficulty presented by confessional duality cannot be avoided by simply declaring that both state and party ought officially to disregard the fact of confessional diversity. A standpoint such as this would be absolutely opposed to the essence of National Socialism. Indeed, it would be exactly the point of view adopted by liberalism, already rejected by us as being anti-national socialistic, and which we must always continue to reject. No real German, be he an evangelical or a Roman Catholic Christian, would ever think for a moment of giving up or of denying his Christian sentiments and no one may demand of him anything approaching the nature of such a step. Least of all would National Socialism tolerate such unreasonable requests so contrary to its nature, and desiring as it does the whole personality, and not a character so pieced together that it can be divided at will. Further, it desires an organically uniform culture, and not what would appear externally as a collection of cultural domains, each capable, as it were, of being enclosed within walls and of locking itself behind barred doors. The path of National Socialism leads in the opposite direction. In every domain of German life, multiform characteristics of individuals, the diversity of groups, and the plurality of spiritual trends of thought are duly appreciated but everything is brought from out of the spheres of secrecy, treachery, malice, and contradiction to the full light of day and brotherly understanding. And so, in the German nation today and in all national socialistic associations, the difference between evangelical and Roman Catholic Christians may not be hidden or suppressed, and no one may cast suspicion on or refuse to recognize another because he professes a different creed meaning, of course, a different Christian creed, or prefers another form of religious practice or methods of church organization. This very difference ought to make him all the more respected and appreciated as a German and a Christian brother. Germans were expected to be Christian brothers. It is no wonder, seeing that National Socialism sought to put real Christianity into practice that the Jews would want to destroy any chance that other Christians, that Christians today, could learn this valuable lesson. Of all the world's religions, only true Christianity is absolutely hostile to Judaism. And only true Christianity is absolutely and irreconcilably opposed to the very nature of the Jew. Therefore, after the war, after World War II, the Jews, under the guise and protection of the Allies, 
created many fabrications and forgeries of documents to make it appear as if national socialists were anti-Christian. And this has caused much confusion to this very day. The so-called table talk book, which is pure trash, the forged Goebbels diaries, which are pure trash, and many other writings were created so that the Jews could portray a falsely pagan and even anti-Christian picture of National Socialist Germany and keep the essence of the last real Christian crusade away from the knowledge of the other Christian people of the world. The Jews have done everything they can to obfuscate the fact that national socialist Germany was a Christian crusade against the domination of world Jewry. If Christians knew the truth of these matters, the Jews would lose control of the churches, which they have now had control of to one degree or another for 500 years. Anyone who falls for the idea that Adolf Hitler, that National Socialism, or men such as Himmler or Goebbels were anti-Christian are nothing but dupes and whores for the Jews, whether they know it or not. Back to Caius Fabricius. Much might be said in connection about the substance of the two great types of Christianity and their attitude towards National Socialism, which owing to their diversity of character is obviously not quite the same. But this is not the place for me to deal with the differences existing between evangelical and Roman Catholic Christians, since the task I have set myself here is the exposition of the basic principles of National Socialism with respect to Christianity as expressed in its spirit and in its party program. For the rest, I am writing now as an evangelical theologian heedless of confessional strife, meaning the differences with Catholics, and leave it to Roman Catholic theologians to do the same. I am, however, convinced that the surveys of the principles of Christianity, which I, as an evangelical theologian, have set forth in these pages, will be approved by very many Roman Catholic Christians, dealing as it does with fundamental truths that in spite of differences are affirmed by countless Roman Catholic Christians. As we had illustrated in the opening portion of these presentations, Caius Fabricius was a professor and a prominent theologian in Germany for several decades before he joined the National Socialist German Workers' Party and long before he wrote this booklet. In this booklet, Caius Fabricius has already made reference to the religious free thinkers and their rejection by national socialists. It is no secret that these religious free thinkers were either communists or tools used by the communists to attract men into lasciviousness, hedonism, and all sorts of immorality. Here is a passage in this regard from a booklet by Joseph Goebbels entitled 
communism with the mask off, or in some translations, Bolshevism with the mask off. And Dr. Goebbels says, in its issue of the 6th of November, 1930, the atheist, the monthly periodical, which is the central organ of the association of militant atheists, wrote the following. We shall burn down all the churches of the world and raise all the prisons to the ground. In all educational establishments throughout the Soviet Union, religious instruction is forbidden, and in its place there has been introduced a systematic instructional course in Marxist atheism. Children under the age of 18 are forbidden to take part in religious prayers and services. The church law of the 8th of April 1929 has established a situation in which spiritual and religious communities are deprived of all rights. All the clergy and all their families belong to the dispossessed class of Soviet citizens, thus automatically losing their right to work or earn their livelihood, and they are liable to be removed from their domicile, their home, at any time whatsoever. <clears throat> Such is the theory and world concept of the, ju- of the juridical principles underlying Bolshevik atheism, and such principles are accordingly carried out in practice. Up to 1930, this is Goebbels talking about the Soviet Union and, and the Bolsheviks, up to 1930, 31 bishops, 1,600 clergy, and 7,000 monks were murdered under the Soviet regime. According to statistics available for 1930, they were then confined in prisons under starvation conditions. 48 bishops, 3,700 clergy, and 8,000 monks and nuns. The International League Against the Third International at Geneva issued statistics on the August, the 6th of August, 1935, showing that in Russia, 40,000 priests had been arrested banished or murdered. Nearly all the Orthodox churches and chapels have either been destroyed or else closed to religious worship and converted into clubs, cinemas, barns, etc. Prior to our advent to power, the atheist propaganda carried out by the Marxists in Germany, whose forces we have overthrown, took its stand in favor of the dreadful state of things which I have described. The Social Democratic League of German Freethinkers alone had a membership of 600,000. The Communist League of Proletarian Freethinkers had close to 160,000 members. Almost without exception, the intellectual leaders of Marxist atheism in Germany were Jews, among them being Eric Weinart, Felix Abraham, Dr. Levi Lenz, and others. At regular meetings held in the presence of a notary public, members were requested to register their declaration of withdrawal from their church for a fee of two marks, and thus the fight for atheism was carried on. Between 1918 and 1933, the withdrawals from the German evangelical churches alone amounted to 2.5 million persons in Germany. The program which these atheistic societies laid down in regard to sexual matters is amply characterized in the following demands publicly expressed 
at meetings and distributed in leaflet form. One, the complete abrogation of those paragraphs of the law dealing with the crime of abortion and the right to have abortion procured free of charge in state hospitals. Two, non-interference with prostitution. Three, the abrogation of all bourgeois capitalistic regulations in regard to marriage and divorce. This sounds exactly like America today because it is America today, and it's the same people behind it, the atheists and the Jews. Four, official registration to be optional and the children to be educated by the community, public schools. Five, abrogation of all penalties for sexual perversities and amnesty to be granted to all persons condemned as sexual criminals. It's coming here. That's next. Truly a case of methodical insanity, which has for its aim the willful destruction of the nations and their civilization, and the substitution of barbarism as a fundamental principle of public life. Where are the men behind the scenes of this virulent world movement? Who are the inventors of all this madness? Who transplanted this ensemble into Russia and is today making the attempt to have it prevail in other countries? The answer to these questions discloses the actual secret of our anti-Jewish policy and our uncompromising fight against Jewry for the Bolshevik Internationale is in reality nothing less than a Jewish Internationale. And today the Jewish propagandists propagate books and websites wherein they portray Goebbels as making a mockery of Christian morals contrary to the facts of Goebbels' own life and his many speeches and booklets. Joseph Goebbels was indeed a Christian. It is the Jew seeking to despoil and destroy Christianity and the anti-Christian so-called Aryan pagans and atheists are dupes and whores for the Jews. And with that, we will commence with part three of this section of Fabricius's paper, and it's entitled the German Evangelical Church. The attention of party and state is naturally directed at a high degree to the Evangelical Church, comprising as it does more than 40 millions of German citizens in the Reich itself. And beyond the frontiers where it forms the soul of Germans living abroad in all parts of the world, it numbers at least another 10 million. This church deserves the name of church of the German folk more than any other religious community. Outwardly, it is one and the same with the great bulk of the people, and not only this, in its inner life is most intimately bound up with the inner life of the German nation. This church, therefore, is one of the great living facts confronting every national socialist at all conscious of his responsibility and who considers in all seriousness the present and future position of his folk. In this great evangelical church, there is a certain multiformity of opinions and trends of thought. Here are to be found Christians of a more conservative turn of mind and others who hold more progressive views. There are pietists who devote themselves more than others to the practice of piety. Others, again, there are whose devoutness is most closely linked with secular life either as workers serving their fellows in the social sphere 
or else by connecting their faith chiefly with the questions of intellectual life. And again, amongst these are to be found those who rationalistically trust to human understanding for their conception of God and others who dialectically emphasize the separation of the divine from the human as the infinite from the finite. These diversities of opinion, however, amongst those holding evangelical views are of considerably less importance than the gulf between Protestant and Roman Catholic Christianity. Neither has their duration been that of centuries, as in the case of the separation of the two great churches, but they come and go with decades and generations. Incidentally, a multiformity of views is consistent with the essence of a truly great and living national church. Another important point is that in Germany, such differences of opinion have hardly ever been known to lead to final disintegration and to the formation of free churches unless foreign influences have made themselves felt, as has already happened to a very small extent. The feeling of unity in the German evangelical churches has always been exceedingly strong, notwithstanding the change of views, so that a splitting up of the churches, as in England, for instance, has never taken place here. This kind of German evangelical church will probably continue to be preserved in the future. For just at the very moment, when everywhere in Germany, as elsewhere in the world, the urge for unity is apparent and great efforts are being made towards the reunion of separated churches, it would indeed be an unusual condition of things were a cleavage worthy of particular remark to occur within the Evangelical Church of Germany. The, int- the unrest which befell the Evangelical Church in 1933, having already been made noticeable in the preceding year, cannot allow the government and party to adopt a policy of aloofness. Rather, is it necessary for responsible political authorities to investigate with particular care the question of this unrest and its accompanying symptoms. Close cooperation with the church administration and with theological experts is imperative in order to make the position perfectly clear and restore peace. For the new unrest was not merely caused by an inter-ecclesiastical theological dispute, but it was due in no small measure to the national resurgence. True, it was not a result of proper understanding of national socialism, but was caused by certain misconceptions and a vagueness which in conjunction with the political revolution arose in the spiritual life of the German people. One important cause, perhaps indeed the most important cause of the recent quarrels, and and we're not entirely sure of the substance of the quarrels within the Lutheran church that Fabricius is describing, but there were obviously some divisions in the church with the advent of the National Socialist to power in 1932. One important cause, perhaps indeed the most important cause of the recent quarrels, is to be found in the fact that certain writers and their followers, all supporters of free thought, created the impression that National Socialism is necessarily connected with a new pagan creed that was to replace the Christian religion and, and that his many national, white national, white nationalist clowns that perpetuate this same lie today. 
And Fabricius continues by saying, this immediately brought the opposition party within the church to the fore. This party, however, in the course of events, did not only militate against the pagans, but against the German Christians who affirmed both Christianity and National Socialism. Opposition was then extended against the Reich Church government because it was thought that the German Christian and the Reich Church government were making common cause with National Socialism that was supposed to be pagan at heart. A second cause of the conflict was found in the Church Constitution. A most thorough reconstruction of the Constitution of the German Evangelical Church on the lines of the Reichsreform had been undertaken because it was believed, and correctly too, that normally speaking, each church is organized in accordance with the existing social order of a people. The opposition party within the church, however, were unwilling to renounce the existing forms which, after the revolution of 1918, had been constructed as emergency constitutions and were partly adaptations of old church administrations under former ruling princes of German states and were partly derived from the democratic system of the Weimar Reich Constitution. A third important cause was that the certain political elements critical of National Socialism attached themselves to the church opposition party, hoping thereby to prevent the inner consolidation of the German folk by making use of the disturbances within the church. In consideration of the close connection of the tension within the church, the political reconstruction of the folk, the Reich's government is naturally unable to hold aloof from church affairs. In other words, they had to get involved. Rather, it is a more rational proceeding on the part of the state and party to eliminate all possibilities of conflict within the evangelical church. The appointment of a ministry for church affairs in the summer of 1935 was a propitious beginning, and it is to be expected that the activities of this ministry and the efforts of all concerned will be effective in finally restoring confidential relations which are an essential preliminary to the promotion of the nation's inner unity. And here Fabricius accurately represents national socialist feelings towards Christianity. To this day, there are still rumblings from pagans that Hitler only gave Christianity lip service until he had come to power. And then, after winning the war, would suddenly come out of the closet as a pagan. These contenders all imagine that Hitler and Goebbels and the other national socialists are hypocrites, always meaning the opposite of what they said. In reality, these white nationalist and pagan contenders are the true hypocrites, and they do well the deeds of their Jewish masters. Adolf Hitler, in a speech to the Reichstag given on January 30th, 1939, said the following, We are indeed perhaps better able than other generations to realize the full meaning of those pious words, what a change by the grace of God, meaning the German revival under National Socialism. Amongst the accusations which are directed against Germany in the so-called democracies is the charge that the National Socialist state is hostile to religion. And by religion, he means 
Christianity because to him, that was basically the only legitimate religion. In answer to that charge, I should like to make before the German people the following solemn declaration. No one in Germany has in the past been persecuted because of his religious views, nor will anyone in the future be so persecuted. The churches are the greatest landed proprietors after the state, the largest landholders after the government itself. Further, the church in the national socialist state is in many ways favored in regard to taxation, as for gifts, legacies, etc., it enjoys immunity from taxation. It is therefore, to put it mildly, effrontery when especially foreign politicians make bold to speak of hostility to religion in the Third Reich. I would allow myself only one question. What contributions during the same period have France, England, or the United States made through the state from the public funds? The National Socialist State has not closed the church, nor has it prevented the holding of a religious service, nor has it ever exercised any influence upon the form of a religious service. It has not exercised any pressure upon the doctrine nor on the profession of faith of any of the confessions. In the National Socialist State, anyone is free to seek his blessedness after his own fashion. There are ten thousands and ten thousands of priests of all the Christian confessions who perform their ecclesiastical duties just as well or probably better than the political agitators without ever coming into conflict with the laws of the state. This state has only once intervened in the internal regulation of the churches. That is when I myself in 1933 endeavored to unite the weak and divided Protestant churches of the different states into one great and powerful evangelical church of the Reich. That attempt failed through the opposition of the bishops of some states. It was therefore abandoned, for it is the last resort. It is in the last resort not our task to defend or even to strengthen the evangelical church through violence against its own representatives. But on one point, it is well that there should be no uncertainty. The German priest, as a servant of God, we shall protect. The priest, as a political enemy of the German state, we shall destroy. And fairly so. In February of that same year, he said in a speech in Munich, if positive Christianity means love of one's neighbor, in other words, the tending of the sick, or for example, the tending of the sick, the clothing of the poor, the feeding of the hungry, the giving of drink to those who are thirsty, then it is we who are the more positive Christians. For in these spheres, the community of the people of National Socialist Germany has accomplished a prodigious work. With this, we shall commence with part three of the first half of Fabricius's booklet. The first two parts were entitled, What We Reject and What We Affirm. Here is the third part, which is what we stand for. And item number one is the recognition of Christianity by the party. And Fabricius says, let us now consider more closely the relations between National Socialism and the Christian religion. It is taken for granted 
that in National Socialistic Germany, the internal peace of which has always been the Fuhrer's chief care, that the Christian religion professed by the overwhelming majority of the nation should be regarded with the utmost reverence. This would also be the case even if a ruler were a free thinker or if the sentiments of his entourage were professedly anti-Christian. Again, it would be extremely unwise on the part of men holding high offices in state and party if they permitted anything, however trivial, that would promulgate the idea that they wished to interfere with the Christian faith and the furtherance of Christian life. A deep respect for and recognition of the Christian religion on the part of the state and the party have important consequences for the position of the church within the nation. The church is to be unconditionally allowed all the privileges becoming to its dignity and which can be claimed by any statutory corporation. It is granted entire liberty to preach the gospel with all the means at its disposal and to preserve and promote Christian life. It is the duty of the guardians of public peace to protect church services and all church institutions with the utmost rigor against defamation and ridicule. In fact, to repulse every act of violence directed against the church and its representatives. Point 24 of the the official National Socialist Workers Party program reads as follows, and it was upheld throughout the entire National Socialist period. We demand freedom of religion for all religious denominations within the state so long as they do not endanger its existence or oppose the moral senses of the Germanic race. The party as such advocates the standpoint of a positive Christianity without binding itself confessionally to any one denomination. It combats the Jewish materialistic spirit within and around us and is convinced that a lasting recovery of our nation can only succeed within, from within on the framework common utility precedes individual utility. In other words, a practical Christianity must be practiced whereby each German man, woman, and child puts the interests of the nation ahead of his own interests, the interests of his community ahead of his own interests. Item number two, the Christian standpoint of the party. And so Brickius says, we have, however, in the course of these remarks, only reached the threshold of what is to be said concerning the relations between Christianity and National Socialism. For the Christian religion is not merely regarded with outward respect by the National Socialists or considered from a distance as something great and sacred it may be to other and narrower circles, but for themselves as something negligible or useless. Neither is the Christian religion looked upon as something that merely adorns life or enhances the beauty of some earthly experience in moments of uplift, nor is it only some sphere of life visited perfunctorily 
when occasion demands. In other words, Christianity isn't just for going to church one hour a week. In order to do for the sake of appearances what to others is a sacred and solemn act. In other words, National Socialists were not giving Christianity mere lip service. And Fabricius says, no, the party as such stands for positive Christianity is the pronouncement of the party program. And that means vastly more than mere respect and regard, more than mere toleration of what now exists once and for all, and which must be preserved as one of the old traditions of the people. Generally speaking, we mean by standpoint, the foundation supporting us, that which gives us a hold and security we should hover in the air and plunge into the abyss if we were without a firm standpoint or a firm foundation. Now, if the party as such takes positive Christianity as its standpoint, it means that the National Socialistic Movement finds its hold, its support in Christianity, and that without this solid foundation, National Socialism would hover in the air and plunge into the abyss. Fabricius attests that Christianity is the only viable foundation of National Socialism. Important, too, and the best possible explanation in this connection is the statement in the program that the German nation can achieve permanent health from within. That is to say, positive Christianity is the innermost life, the spirit, the soul of the National Socialistic German people, or in other words, National Socialism itself has deep roots in the Christian spirit. It is a movement determined by Christianity. This does not mean, however, that National Socialism itself is actually a religious movement. National Socialism as such is nothing else but the vigorous drawing together of a people menaced by a danger and destruction into one great bond of inner unity. It is substantially more national in character, being a reversal of the relations existing between men within the nation, hence an event that is realized in the domain of social culture. And to understand why Fabricius considered the practice of Christianity a reversal of the relations existing between men within the nation, one must understand the abject dereliction, the apostasy from all morality, and the competition between men of the years of the Weimar Republic, where it was every man for himself, because the Jew only threw a few bones onto the street corner. National socialism as such is therefore not a religious reformation but is nevertheless an upheaval in a Christian people. And so the tumult in the minds of men brought about by the awakening to a new conception of national life penetrates the innermost spheres of life even into religion itself. And consequently, when a Christian awakening through the national uprising would appear a perfectly natural thing. And moreover, the richness the rich fullness of the divine spirit 
would bestow new gifts and endow the national regeneration with the final qualities of strength and death. And we would assert, <clears throat> we would assert that National Socialism had to a great extent turned the German people from the meaningless rites and rituals which substitute for Christianity in the denominational churches, it turned them to the practice of true and practical Christianity, which is actually taught in the Bible. It saved them from the absolute immorality of the Weimar years and caused the German people rather than competing with each other like dogs to work together like brethren. Fabricius continues. And so when in the party program, positive Christianity is spoken of as being the essential standpoint of the party as such, if permanent health is to be achieved from within, and when the Fuhrer appeals to the Christian churches to make their moral influence an effectual force in the nation. This is sure proof that doors are not closed to Christianity in Germany, but that instead they are opened wide to allow the stream of the Holy Spirit to flow into the lives of the people and transform barren soil into a fruitful garden of God. The German folk... is ready to be sanctified, its soul weary and parched in the age of materialistic barrenness and Marxian agitation, longs for the noblest of spiritual food, carries and waits for those who have authority to preach the gospel message to give them this food, in the hope, too, that all personal forces will be active in promoting the regeneration of the spirit of the people from within. This and this alone is the real meaning of the clause pronouncing positive Christianity to be the standpoint of the party. Referring again to the 24th point in the National Socialist Party program. But another more weighty question arises. For us, the core of the whole matter Wherein does the interconnection consist between the Christian religion and the National Socialistic view of life or Weltanschauung? Is it, it is not sufficient for us to know that according to point 24 of the party program, both belong together, nor is it enough to find that the Christian religion forms the kernel of National Socialistic views of life or Weltanschauung, rather must we investigate the nature of those forces which emanating from the spirit of Christianity permeate the whole life of the people. Inversely, it must be determined in how far the forces proceeding from free thought are inadequate or detrimental to the life of the folk. And above all, we must keep in view in how far Christian forces are conducive to success in the present heroic fight of the German folk for life and honor, and to what extent pagan forces are a hindrance. But this makes a new and thorough investigation necessary. And that, include, that concludes part one of 
Caius Fabricius's booklet, Positive Christianity in the Third Reich. Yahweh willing, we shall commence next Friday with part two, which is entitled The Christian Foundations of National Socialism. Tomorrow night, Clifton Emmerheiser on E. Raymond Cat. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh and good night.